You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we're going to talk about our favorite examples of bands that changed members and got better for it. Really interesting, when an established band in the middle of its career, maybe somewhat successful already, makes a change to at least one band member and then just gets exponentially more popular. Yeah, yeah, we were going to call it hostile takeovers, but they weren't always hostile. We'll have some fun with that. But first, we've got some new music to review. I bought you breakfast, then you started your rings. The air was fragrant and thick with our silence. I held my breath as something deep inside pinched. I touched the bump on your wrist, you were born with. That is a little bit of the song Too Good by Arlo Parks from her first full album, Mr. Cot, Collapsed in Sunbeams. A super talented, young, 20 years old now, musician and poet from West London. With a multicultural background, her dad was from Nigeria, mom was from France and uh, had Chadian background, and she's raised in West London, uh, poetry her first love. Greg, uh, with the release of her first EP, Super Sad Generation 2019, uh, the worst thing that can happen to any singer-songwriter ever happened to poor Arlo. She was branded by the Brits the voice of her generation. An artist of of some substance and a wide-ranging interest from classic singer-songwriter music to, as I said, poetry, steeped in poetry, but also a big fan of Radiohead. So there's there's uh, interesting production stuff happening in her music. Let's play a song from this album and get into our opinions. I'm eager to hear what you think. I have a lot to say as well. This is Hope by Arlo Parks on Sound Opinions. Merely try to talk the pleasure back into being alive Reminiscing about the apricots and blunts on pack and rye That is Hope, a track from the new Arlo Parks record, Collapsed in Sunbeams. Jim, yes, a lot of hype around this artist right now. And uh, I can understand why. I mean, uh, you know, she is a voice, a pleasant voice of uh, hope, as the song says, in, at a time when uh, a lot of people are losing exactly that. The multicultural name checks in these songs are, mm-hmm. are legion. Yeah, you know, yeah. she's got a lot of reference points culturally that she's bringing up. There's a lot of lyrics about plowing through and not giving up and, and staying, keeping your head above water, and it's going to be okay. I know, because I'm trying to make myself okay. Pleasant, pleasant enough voice. The music is, um, you know, I have to say, I think the music is incredibly unambitious. Really? Uh, it's almost like they want to create a soundtrack that you can invite your parents over and put this on, and nobody's going to be offended in the room. 
I feel like I could take a bubble bath with this music and probably fall asleep in the bathtub while listening to it. I think you need a bubble bath, to be frank. Well, you know, I haven't taken one, but this is the music for it. Are you know? missing the touches of, of Radiohead? The oh, odd, uh... I, I hear a lot of little reference points, but I, I, we played a couple of songs that I think are super catchy. And then after about two or three listens, I realized why they are, because the refrains just keep repeating over and over and over again. And I found myself on multiple listens on this album having a harder time getting through it than I did the first time. Really? The first time, my ears sort of pricked up because he's checking all those boxes that I kind of like. Folk soul, a little bit of trip hop. A little Rem- jazz in there. Remember India Ari uh, oh, back in the day? I Love thought she was India a great artist. A little bit of Lauren Hill. But I'm thinking of contemporary artists who are addressing these same kind of issues that she is. And more power to her. We need more records about hope. Absolutely. We need more records about self-love and self-care. And delivering that on multiple fronts was that Chicago artist Tasha Mm -hmm. that we had on the show a couple years ago, I believe, like 2019 probably, before the COVID hit. Even then, it was a time of, you know, an incredible tension in our country. And somebody like Lizzo who addresses many of these same subjects, but there's tension in the music, there's variety in the music, and what, I, what I'm missing in Arlo Parks is a sense of that tension and conflict. I think there's a lot of pleasantness here. It's a very pr- pleasant record. She's got oh, a wonderful voice, but I am not hearing the kind of songs that I want to keep returning to. I don't know about that. What's interesting to me is that she is not intensely uh, navel-gazing. Her gaze is outward, not inward. She is writing about people in her life that she knows, and she's writing about, uh, with a self-consciousness, Greg, that says, yeah, there's nothing more cliched than uh, a young uh, man or woman of 18 or 19 uh, talking about being depressed. So she is doing the Ray Davies thing of sociological observation of people around her. And she's very much clearly one of those people herself. But it's not super self-confessional in that dreaded sweet baby James Taylor way, right? Um, Not even in a a Phoebe Bridgers way. And I love Phoebe Bridgers. Um, I I think there's humor here you're missing. I think there's a, a little more sophistication in the uh, in the production that you're missing, I think she is Lily Allen, without the snarkiness. But it's more authentic, more real to me. I I, I love Arlo Parks. Full moon, put me in the corner, have me swinging with the pool cue. I do this for them brock cues. No money in the lunchroom. My brothers in the magistrates. All they know is slanging, waiting, banging till they knuckles break. Mother's safe for peace sake, we could only keep the peace safe. Peace up the street with the heat, trying to bleed great. Some people can't see straight. Need to find direction. If I clock an interception, cry time, watch your knees break. That's a track called Play With Fire from the new Slow Tie album, Tyron. Uh, British rapper Tyron Camon Frampton, otherwise known as uh, Slow Tie, has been all the rage in uh, the British hip-hop scene the last few years. You talk about a voice of a generation, you know, yeah. they're, they're attaching that uh, to uh, Arlo Parks. The same kind of treatment uh, Slow Tie is getting. He rose to popularity in 2019 because of his politically charged lyrics. He was naming names, including the then uh, British Prime Minister, Theresa May. He is the voice of the dissent in Brexit-era 
England. Very yeah. punky attitude. Very <laughs> much about uh, you know <laughs> walking on stage yeah. at an awards ceremony yeah. with a the, the severed head of of uh, Boris Johnson. Well, and he had another incident at an awards ceremony yes. where he was uh, called out and uh, and canceled, quote unquote, by uh, by the culture because of he just went too far. A lewd, lewd comments to the female host. And I'll spare you all the details, but uh, you know, nonetheless, slow tie has been in a little bit of hot water over the yeah. last couple of years. At the same time, being an extremely popular artist with his music. Uh, the debut was the uh, well-titled Nothing Great About Britain. That's exactly what <laughs> yeah. he felt, and yeah. he was expressing it in no uncertain terms on that record. So much anticipated follow-up, Tyron, and he's uh, talking here in a much more personal manner, as you might guess. Uh, here's a track from Tyron before we review it. It's called Feel Away from Slow Tie on Sound Opinions. We don't go on dates, we went our separate ways And we don't conversate, she said I'm playing games She said she feels trapped, stuck up in this makeup maze How you been? I've been better than yesterday And it was just a day, you know I don't complain Standing in the rain, soaking wet, trying to demonstrate That I don't feel away, I never hesitate What's on your mind, can you say, what you thinking babe? I'm too sure for my pockets, not as bollocks Walking through my mind, it's a forest, don't get lost again Said you want a cottage with a fireplace Sitting by the fire with marshmallows in a chocolate fake You felt low, I took you higher than a note from Mariah And still you got the cheek to even try and call me liar One up, one up in the oven, trying to trap me in by wire Put a baby in your stomach if that's what you desire Desire, 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 desire that is Feel Away by Slow Tie, a.k.a. Tyron, uh, from his second full album. Uh, a fascinating track, that, Greg. It's driven by a little bit of a hooky sample uh, from James Blake. And um, it's part of the second half of this album. The album more or less divides in two. Uh, club bangers, hard-hitting uh, tracks, uh, kind of snarky, kind of snotty in the uh, in-your-face slow-tie way, and then slower introspection. What I like about this guy, and make no mistake, his his outburst uh, against the female host on the, on the award show, uh, some of the things he's done in public, uh, running around in his boxer shorts. You know what? I'm thinking of this kid who is trying to find his way and be authentic and real in the full glare spotlight mm-hmm. of the British music press. Right? He's as famous in the UK right now as famous gets. And he knows he can be a jerk. Mm-hmm. And he sometimes is a jerk. What's really astounding about Tyron is this album, he owns up to his worst impulses. He doesn't always stop him. Uh, but, you know, he can throw out a line like, Living and I'm dead, caught in Charlotte's web. I can't feel myself. Mind complexity be the death of me. I'm a melon sweet. I got tendencies. I got tendencies. Touch me tenderly. Heaven let me in. I think it got amnesia. Unlike Kanye West, the bum-rushing Taylor Swift incident and other outbursts mm-hmm. like that, Kanye never was capable of introspection and looking inside himself and wondering why he could be such a jerk. And show me a cocky, talented 26-year-old male who 
uh, isn't ever a jerk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it goes with the species, right? Um, but the track we played in particular, where he's talking about trying to find romantic love in a way that, uh, you know, he previously hasn't, a really kind of light-touch production from Mount Kimby, and some great lines, You Look Low, I took you higher than a note from Mariah. Mm. Um, He makes you like him in a way that, say, the streets never did, Mm. in a way that Kanye can really drive you away. It's not solipsistic in the way that, like, Drake is. Oh, I'm famous, I'm having problems. There's a humor and there's a realness here. Mm -hmm. I agree with you to an extent. I think uh, he's a fascinating artist in, in that he is being even more transparent, if that's possible on this album at the same time the uh shadow of the you know his so-called being canceled you know hangs over this record and you know he's referencing it in a couple of songs most notably in a song called canceled you know to my mind it's like why are you even whining about being a celebrity you're not canceled you got this record out you're the most celebrated person in britain for bad or good that's the that's the deal kid but I do like the fact that he is um, showing more of himself, the more of more of what's going on inside, and I think that's that's kind of a cool progression for this artist. I have to admit, I love the first record more than this one because mm. I just love that punky <laughs> the title attitude. <laughs> I love the sort of the lineage from the Clash to somebody like Mike Skinner, yeah. the Streets, as the he streets, was known yeah. back in the day. Sort of that voice of the working class, of the downtrodden, of the people who's you know seeing the wage gap in England just progressively get worse and worse for the for the low end versus the high end i like that guy that guy expressing that feeling that you have when you're that age he seemed like he was putting on an act to me not i don't think so man i think that guy was was pissed and he was showing it in in that record this record you get some of that uh vulnerability and in the second half you know what really got to me that in ADHD, that last track, which is kind of, there's a little bit of weepiness and feeling sorry for himself, but that primal scream in there really got me. There's some feeling going into this in this music, the sort of tug of war that he's talking about between his heart and his mind, and it's playing out especially in the second half of this record. And I, I say to you again, 26, Greg. The progression that we're seeing of this artist uh, leads me to believe there's there's more greatness in store for him. Well, those are our thoughts on the newest from Arlo Parks and Slow Tie, but we want to know what you think. Tell us on Facebook or Twitter, or leave a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. After a break, we're going to share our favorite lineup changes, most impactful ever in music. That's coming up on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week we're talking about a phenomenon that's somewhat rare in music. Uh, when established groups change one or more of their band members and then go on to make their best work or their most commercially successful work. We're having a broad definition of this. You're going to lead us off. Well, probably, I know where you're going, probably the most famous lineup changes ever. Well, yeah, they're the kings and queens of uh, lineup changes in this group. Uh, <laughs> Uh, other than the rhythm section, you know, Mick Fleetwood and John McVie, Fleetwood Mac have been a revolving door of band members since their inception in the 60s. And they're still going today uh, with a different lineup. And McVie and Mick Fleetwood still, you know, anchoring the group. The changes started in the 60s with the, the Peter Green era group. Peter Green, the uh, guitarist in that band, um, hired by Mick Fleetwood uh, to play guitar in that group and ended up defining the sound. Yeah. 
he had three years there or so where he was just on fire and then just burned out and cracked up. He had a mental breakdown, uh, left the group, and the group reinvented itself again. Its second major incarnation, uh, beginning around the early 70s, was centered on a Californian, a guitarist and songwriter named Bob Welch, and then, of course, the keyboardist Christine McVie, Mm. who was married at the time to bassist John McVie. Christine McVie and Bob Welch ended up doing the bulk of the songwriting on many of those uh, early 70s records. And a lot of people have the perception that the group wasn't very successful at that time. They were sort of a cult act. But by the time uh, they made their 1974 album, Heroes Are Hard to Find, they'd cracked the top 40 on the Billboard charts. They'd, yeah. they'd started to have some commercial success because the songwriting was really good in that group. Mm-hmm. You not only, not only had Christine McVie, but Bob Welch was one of those kind of underwritten personalities in music history not appreciated fully enough for some of the weirdness he came up with and some of the cool <laughs> hypnotic vibes we used to love on the uh, the heroes are hard to find record uh, what turned out to be his final record with the band uh, bermuda triangle now here's mm-hmm. one you see strange shapes in the light shadows in the night they said that wingtips seemed to brush their faces strangers stole their sight Way down in the triangle. So these are all kind of these mystical sounding tracks that gave Fleetwood Mac a very distinctive sound, very much different from the Peter Green era of Fleetwood Mac. Right. So they're sort of progressing along here. But then the band blows up again. Welch mm-hmm. leaves, he's burned out. So Mick Fleetwood's desperate for a guitar player yeah. and maybe another songwriter. Yeah. And then he stumbles into two. Right. Uh, he meets uh, Lindsey Buckingham out of nowhere in a studio because some producer that he knew played him a track of an obscure duo named Buckingham Nicks and, and said, this is pretty cool. Who is this guy? Mm-hmm, Met, mm-hmm. Meets Lindsey Buckingham and ends up, Lindsey says, well, you got to, you know, let's bring my partner in too, Stevie Nicks. Lo and behold, they get two songwriters for the price of one. Uh, joining Christine McVie, it's a three-headed monster of great songwriters in that group and their huge 1975 debut album with that lineup called Fleetwood Mac, appropriately enough. It's like the band starting over yeah. for the third time, <laughs> their biggest record of all time. And it continues to have bigger yeah. selling records after that. Greg, uh, as obvious as Fleetwood Mac is, I'm going to go with an obvious one to start out. Uh, Genesis, right? Phil Collins was not even the first drummer in Genesis. It was a real insular crowd of uh, students at the Charterhouse Boarding School. (laughs) You know, uh, Tony Banks, Mike Rutherford, this guy Peter Gabriel, and a great guitarist named Anthony Phillips. A lot of lineup changes in Genesis, too. Phillips is replaced by Steve Hackett down the line. But the first drummer for Genesis is replaced by Phil Collins, and he's an excellent drummer, and they are happy to have him behind the drum set. He has the added benefit of uh, being okay at backing vocals. If you look at some of those (laughs) ancient 
Genesis uh, concert uh, shots. You know, Phil is not only playing incredibly complicated drum parts behind a massive set, the microphone is hanging over his head, and he's giving background vocals to uh, Peter Gabriel. But Gabriel became such a theatrical focus and is such a great singer. You know, he really was the star of the band uh, all throughout uh, its early history up to The Lamb Lies Down on Broadway, the epic double album concept set. And then Gabriel uh, is burned out and splits in 1975. The band is going to continue. I mean, they've got, uh, you know, killer uh, bassist, guitarist, uh, keyboardist, and and Phil Collins, and they are auditioning singers, wondering how they uh, can do anything after Peter Gabriel, especially the press had made him the focus. And in frustration, after uh, one in a never-ending series of uh, vocal tryouts, Phil Collins said, you know, damn it, give me a shot, I'll just sing this song. It was Mm -hmm. the song called Squonk, Mm -hmm. about one of those kind of mythical creatures. The album would become a trick of the tale. It's full of, you know, uh, fairy tale mythology and and fun stuff, but getting a little more real than they had been in their early days. And uh, the story goes that Collins uh, did such a great job on this song, Squonk. Uh, They recorded it. He continued doing uh, vocals for the whole rest of the album. And, of course, there there exists a huge generation of fans who, who only know Collins as the singer. You know, that weird early stuff, Watcher of the Skies mm. and all of that, uh, that Gabriel sang. You know, Collins was the voice of the hits. Uh, they, they continued in the progressive rock vein for some time and then became actually a three-piece pop band with Phil and Mike Rutherford and Tony Banks. Um, you know... I'll defend him <laughs> up until Abacab, I think, and then I can't really defend much Genesis anymore. But uh, but listen to the job he does on Squonk and think back to how different Gabriel's vocals were on Lamb Lies Down on Broadway. Phil Collins definitely added some special sauce to uh, Genesis. I mean, it was yeah. a different band, but, you know, more power to him. The guy who was never thought of as a singer becomes the singer, and they have more success than ever. It's pretty amazing I, I meant to insert this for my students and, and younger bit. That that was Emily in Paris's dad. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, that's a very important note to, to, to point out. Um, I don't know about James Brown's acting career, but I know that he was one of the greatest uh, musicians and artists of the 20th century. Uh, and he changed his bands pretty often, or at least personnel in his bands. He was a famously difficult man to work for. Mm-hmm. Uh, would call out his band members for, for flaws on stage in front of the entire audience. Uh, there was issues with payments. At the same time, he got the best of the best to play with him because yeah. everybody wanted to play with James Brown. The guy was constantly innovating, constantly using his musicians in innovative ways. Uh, the band he had was called the James Brown Orchestra. That was a band steeped in jazz. Pee Wee Ellis, Maceo Parker, Clyde Stubblefield, give the drummer some Clyde Stubblefield, Fred Wesley on trombone, bassist Bernard Odom. What a band. 
They all left. They go, James, we cannot work for you anymore. <laughs> Too hard anymore. working for you, man. Yeah, there was some payment issues, and, and, and so he lost his band. The James Brown yeah. Orchestra basically up and left him. And James, James just was, became the orchestra. was unbothered because there was always people he was finding that yeah. wanted to play with him. And uh, lo and behold, he, he came across Bootsy Collins and his brother mm-hmm. Catfish Collins. So suddenly the JBs are born, right? Mm-hmm. And there was a couple of holdovers from the, uh, from the previous band. So he was able to reintegrate these new players into this lineup. This was not nearly the classy outfit the previous band was. It was a lot dirtier, But a lot it was funkier. a lot dirtier, nastier, more raw. And it was perfect for what Brown was trying to do. He was mm-hmm. basically reinventing funk yet again. He invented it with Cold Sweat a few years earlier. But now it really got raw and nasty. And that's where you hear a track like... Uh, Get up! I feel like being a sex machine. You yeah. know that's <laughs> yeah. that is like Bootsy Collins. Like, Say that again. You said that with such yeah, passion. Get up! I feel like being a sex machine, and that's yeah. what Bootsy Collins' bass sounds like on this song. Get up! Get on up! Get up! Get on up! Bobby, should I take him to the bridge? Go ahead. Take him on to the bridge. Take him to the bridge. Can I take him to the bridge? The way I like it is the way it is. I've got my dig it. He's got his. Stay on the scene. The Bootsy and Catfish are playing off each other. James is out, out front doing what James Brown does. And it's a very different sound. Even though he was approaching this level with something like Say It Loud, I'm Black and I'm Proud mm-hmm. in 69 with the previous lineup, this thing was a whole lot roar that he came up with. And, and both bands were great. You know, there's no doubt about it. But the fact was he just kept building on the success he had with the earlier band with the, with the JB's lineup. Well, well done, Mr. Cod. I would refer people to the archives to hear our immortal interview with Bootsy Collins. And someday... Someday we're going to put out the outtakes. <laughs> yeah, Because yeah. Bootsy, yeah, I'm telling man, you. Bootsy was a, was a trip. I'm going to England, Greg, in the punk era. Uh, 1976, a band forms in Bolton. Buzzcocks, uh, Pete Shelley, the singer-songwriter, guitarist, and singer-songwriter Howard DeVoto. People are saying, yeah. who? You know, Howard DeVoto was initially uh, Shelley's partner in every way, uh, you know, co-writing the first album, the Spiral Scratch EP. Every song on that album is, is co-credited to uh, Shelley and DeVoto. Hey, yeah, well, I'll tell you what I mean. I'll say what comes to my mind. DeVoto, in not much time at all, after that first EP, decides that punk is getting stale. Uh, The quote was, what was once unhealthily fresh is now a clean old hat. You can hear that in the best song uh, from Spiral Scratch, Boredom. You know, he co-wrote this song, Mm -hmm. and already, you know, a year into the punk explosion, 1977, Howard DeVoto is bored. He leaves the Buzzcocks uh, and goes on to form Magazine, which is a heck of a band. Many consider it the first post-punk band. We've talked about them from time to time. 
on bass is Steve Diggle, and he moves forward to uh, join Shelley on second guitar, uh, second vocals, and to step into the songwriter role. Mm-hmm. And then from that point on, Buzzcocks is, Shelley is probably two-thirds of the song, but Diggle's one-third of all the songs that follow are so great, and they make each other better. It's a classic Lennon-McCartney, right. Bob Mould, Grant Hart kind of dynamic. Uh, they sing great together. They, 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 they encourage each other on. You can hear it from the very first... First uh, uh, significant song that Diggle brought to the Buzzcocks, uh, Autonomy, on another music from a different kitchen, that first full album. He's firmly in place there as the uh, McCartney or the Lennon choose one to uh, mm. uh, Shelley's uh, other guy. Um, it's a great team, uh, but it didn't start out as a team. Uh, it became one. It's a thing that's worth having. Well, I love the Buzzcocks. No need to convince me that uh, that is a great band. And man, the, the Diggle uh, Shelley lineup was uh, one of the best of the late seventies. You know, uh, you know, uh, Pete Shelley no longer with us. Diggle still continuing with a version of Buzzcocks. Indeed, he is. And as our listeners know, we don't know everything, Jim. So we love to hear from colleagues to fill in our blind spots. Today, we're uh, we're joined by Shannon Effinger, an arts journalist you may have read in the New York Times, the Washington Post, or Pitchfork among other publications. Shen, welcome to Sound Opinions. Thanks for having me. So you got the concept. We're doing we're doing a single lineup change that has uh, taken a band to a whole new place, new level. Yeah. Better or worse. I had several different groups in mind, but for some reason the Temptations kept coming up uh, for me. Yeah. So what was your entry point to the Temptations? Oh boy, the early material from them just sort of all runs together, you know, my girl. way you do the things you do yeah. you know it's all just like one running thing but i think the the song that initially just stayed with me is just gorgeous on so many levels was probably just my imagination mm-hmm. yeah well what's the lineup change that that you're focusing on so there were two big changes within this song um so david ruffin was part of the classic five um, has since been replaced by Dennis Edwards in 68, I right. believe. But Eddie Kendricks is is out on front in this song, and he he pretty much is the the main vocalist. Like it's a it's a play back and forth between the remaining band members, and you know, almost like a call and response. Like I feel like you know Dennis Edwards, Paul Williams, Melvin Franklin, Otis Williams in this in this capacity. They're sort of keeping him grounded by saying, you know, this is just my imagination while Eddie is off, you know, living his his full on fantasy. The and, just, and this is his Diana yeah. moment. Yeah, exactly. Okay. He wants to. <laughs> <laughs> but it was just my imagination. Just 
of the the change that came about with the temptations in those years was you know you know varying stories with with david's uh personal problems and Mm -hmm. and his you know sort of contentious relationship with with tammy terrell you know at the time of even recording just my imagination i read that uh eddie and and otis weren't seeing eye to eye here and and then soon, you know, Paul Williams, who also, you know, was battling sickle cell anemia and and had serious bouts of depression and and also alcoholism. So I think it means even more to me knowing that and and sort of serves as a, a point of inspiration that, you know, art really can separate mm-hmm. the reality from the, the sheer beauty of living in your your daydreams. Shannon, that is very well put. We're going to have to have you on again. But all right. Oh, Thank you, on. Shannon. It was a pleasure. <laughs> Thank you. Take care. Thanks, Shannon. We love talking to our colleagues, especially when they are as much fun as Shannon. Thank you so much, Shannon. Coming up, we share more lineup changes and hear feedback from our listeners. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim DeRogatis. My partner is Greg Cott. And this week, we are talking significant lineup changes, most that worked out for the best. Greg, you have another for us? I do, Jim. I'm going to uh, go into Punk Planet now. Uh, Henry Rollins with Black Flag. One of the most important bands of its era. And I say this because they may not have been the first punk band, uh, but they certainly were, I think, the most influential early on in the American scene because of the fact that they toured so relentlessly yeah going from town to town for years upon years even though the financial rewards were minimal but inspiring young people in those towns to form their own punk bands right. and to do the same thing follow the same itinerary that black flag did for Buy years the junkie van take off sleep on friends floors yeah. coast to coast jump in the van as yeah. uh, rollins uh, once uh, said in a, in a book title the point with rollins was that he actually liked the idea of being the front man and the singer in this group prior to that black flag had been going through this revolving door of guys mm-hmm. who really weren't sure that they even could sing much less wanted to and so that the band was sort of off to a, a stumbly start. Greg Ginn was an extremely ambitious songwriter and guitar player, really innovative, and uh, couldn't find the right vocalist for the job. Des Kadena was a willing participant. He said, okay, I'll give it a shot, but I really don't want to do this. And in fact, helped hire Rollins. Yeah. Had him come up on stage one time when they were playing a gig on the East Coast and said, hey, kid, you know all the songs. Yeah. Come on up here and sing this one. <laughs> And basically says, Greg Ginn, see, this guy too can do it. Well, if ever there was a guy with yeah. the requisite uh, ham gene yeah. in him to be a front man, it was Henry Rollins. Well, Rollins, uh, you know, transformed the group. He loved the role of being up in front of a crowd and stirring things up. And the band got in, you know, a lot of tussles because of Rollins' confrontational attitude. But there was more to the guy than just sort of this thuggish kind of, you know, I'm up here to, to start a brawl. There was some poetry in those lyrics, and there was mm-hmm. some ambition musically. Ginn got quickly tired of sort of the hardcore approach to punk, and he wanted to expand in the way he was playing guitar and the kind of music that Black Flag could make. And in Rollins, he found a very willing uh, co-conspirator. So Rollins was right with him. So they had a, a stretch there where after those early punk singles, like they would do like co- covers of Louie Louie and things yeah. like that early on. I said, 
Then they couldn't record for a bunch of years because they had some legal issues. When they finally saw those issues, they had this huge stockpile of recordings that they issued in the 80s. I mean, like they were issuing three or four records a year. Yeah, yeah. And people were having trouble <laughs> keeping up. And Rollins was right at the center of that. And a lot of the, a lot of the fans were going, what the hell is this? We yeah. don't understand this music. It's very different from the sound that they came up with when they came out of the California scene in mm -hmm. the late 70s. But Rollins really progressed the band, and they, they became a, a, a much more popular touring entity because of Rollins' presence on stage. So Rollins, you can hear it something like on a track like Best One Yet from that Loose Nut LP in 1985, kind of illustrates where the band was, not only from an, a musical approach, but from the ambition that was going on in the lyrics as well. You know, I, it, it might be perverse to admit, Greg, but I actually prefer the pre-Rollins Black Flag. A, a, a little bit of Henry goes a long way, let me say. Uh, but I don't feel that way about Neil Peart. Um, he became so identified with Rush, one of the greatest drummers of the last half century, an amazing technician, also a, a fine writer. But Neil Peart was not the first drummer of Rush. When that power trio forms in Toronto, uh, the original drummer, John Rutsey, is a fine mm -hmm. player. A little more John Bonham, a little more straightforward rock and roll. He is the percussionist powering uh, Rush's first great song, Working Man. Mm -hmm. And I think in a lot of ways, that's like his anthem. You know what I mean? He, he was a working class drummer. He was a hard rock guy. He had problems with touring. Uh, wasn't really up to where Rush wanted to go. What a perfect drummer they found after just a handful of uh, auditions in Neil Peart. Rutsey doesn't get all of his credit. Fine drummer for early Rush. Also was writing some of the early lyrics. You know, when uh, Alex Lifson and Getty Lee went shopping for a new drummer, they also had to find a lyricist. I mean, these two guys are great instrumentalists, but they didn't have the imagination for the lyrics. So they got both in Neil Peart. From the early Dungeons and Dragons mythical a little mm -hmm. bit too much Ayn Rand stuff, uh, you know, you really feel him on by tour in the snow dog <laughs> right you know he's writing the lyrics yeah. it's a grand you know swords and sorcery kind of epic and uh, and also an incredible drumming and a much more complex musical construction And then, you know, there's no looking back from there. Neil Peart's constant invention with Rush uh, over the decades that followed until his his untimely death in 2020. You know, John Rutsey died young uh, as well in, in 2008. Um, you know, but, but Peart uh, came to define the band with all the lyrical shifts and the musical shifts and just, you know, wow, what a trauma.
Jim, I'm glad uh, you mentioned uh, a drummer, giving the drummer some. Yes. I'm going to give the drummer some more. I think Nirvana became the band that it became because of uh, Dave Grohl entering the band for its second studio album, Nevermind. Uh, not that they were a bad band before, uh, but they've been going through a number of drummers, Kurt Cobain and Chris Novoselic, uh, and never quite nailing just exactly the guy that they wanted. I mean, Dale Crover was doing a great job for them, the Melvin's, the Melvin's drummer, drummer yeah. but he, he wasn't going to be part of that operation full time. So they were going through a bunch of drummers, and they had a, a, a guy who was f- pretty competent. Chad Channing was a good drummer mm-hmm. on, on Bleach, the debut album. But there was some conflict there. Uh, Channing wanted a bigger role in the songwriting. Novoselic and Cobain, during the uh, demo session for the Nevermind album in 1990, both had some issues with the way Channing was drumming. And whatever they had, the personality conflicts, uh, he got bumped out of the band. He quit, depending on who you talk to. They went to Grohl after this. Grohl was part of the uh, indie scene in the 80s. Uh, He was uh, drumming with the band Scream. Uh, which Nirvana had become acquainted with on the road in their travels around America. And uh, Grohl, young, hungry, ready for the opportunity, made the difference for for that band. I think his drumming on Nevermind was very apparent. Butch Vig loved what he was doing in the studio. But even more so, as a live entity, I think the band just exploded when Grohl joined. I remember seeing the band right after Nevermind had come out at a show at Metro Club Show in Chicago. And it was just like, wow, the electricity in the room. When, when Grohl hit those drums, those sticks starting over overhead and landing on the drums yeah, yeah. in a constant barrage of, of rhythm uh, behind those great songs and those big melodies. It was just like uh, this band had elevated to another level. So Grohl made a huge difference in uh, when he joined the band in 1990 and uh, on the Nevermind in, uh, album in 91, and obviously went on to, you know, uh, much success with Foo Fighters afterward. But I think he was never better than when he was the drummer no, in Nirvana. And even if you didn't hear the band live with Channing versus yeah. live with Grohl, you can hear the difference between the first record, Bleach, and Nevermind. No doubt. Well, I got one more, Greg, and it's back to the punk era, although this band, as they proudly proclaimed on their first album, this is pop, Mm. XTC. We were just talking about them because we had uh, Todd Rundgren on the show. He produced Skylarking. XTC uh, formed in rural Swindon, England, fronted by songwriters Andy Partridge and Colin Moulding. This is, is not a musician that made as obvious an impact as some of the others we've talked about. You know, XTC as a quartet was originally completed by uh, keyboardist Barry Andrews. And he was uh, he had a distinctive sound. Andy Partridge said, you know, when we first met him, he sounded like John Lord from Deep Purple. Mm-hmm. By the time uh, he got in the groove with the band, it was as if Miro uh, was playing electric organ. And I think on the debut album, White Music by XTC, you can hear on a song like This Is Pop, the kind of chaotic uh, keyboards and extra textures he brought to these carefully crafted, super energetic, supercharged pop songs that XTC was doing early in the punk era. 
But Barry Andrews left after after one album. Went on to uh, uh, work in uh, League of Gentlemen with mm-hmm. Robert Fripp. <laughs> you yeah. know, he was much more of a prog rocker, art rocker type. And they tapped a fellow to replace him named Dave Gregory. Dave makes his debut on uh, the great single, uh, early XTC hit, Life Begins at the Hop. You may not necessarily hear what he's doing. He's a second guitarist. He's a keyboardist. He's the texture guy. From that point in 1979, Life Begins at the Hop, all the way through 1999, Gregory was the guy who colored in between the lines. Uh, if uh, Andy Partridge always was the, the primary singer-songwriter, and Colin Moulding, a great songwriter, again, contributing uh, about a third of the material, all, all you know, up to Andy's level, but Andy was more prolific, Gregory's the guy that, that was the glue. Uh, for a long time, they didn't even have a drummer in later years, and Gregory was the guy in the middle. Mm-hmm. Andy Partridge, hard to work with, mercurial, uh, difficult, uh, by all accounts, including his own. Um, you know, Gregory kept that band a going concern and, and did a lot of wonderful texture stuff that made the group so great. I don't think anybody can deny that. Going deep with that choice, Jim. Uh, I like it a lot. And uh, we have uh, done our part on these uh, significant lineup changes. Now we want to ask our listeners to contribute as well. Are there other good lineup changes we left out? Let us know by leaving a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org. You never know. Your message might be used on the show in a segment just like this. New messages. Hi, Jim and Greg. This is Sarah from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Thank you so much for your show about Todd Rundgren. I really enjoyed it. Uh, it also reminds me of the song from 1970, uh, We Gotta Get You a Woman, Leroy Boy. Leroy Boy, is that you? I thought your post-hanging days were through. Sunken eyes and full of sighs. Tell no lies. Such good memories. Your show has been so important to me for decades, and especially in this whole last year, you make my week. Thank you, guys. Love you. Hey, Jim and Greg. Just want to call in to give my feedback on the mistakes episode, which was fantastic. An apology that is truly felicitous, in the words of J.L. Austin, our great philosopher of ordinary language who explained to us how speech acts work, requires the person making the apology to recognize that they have, in fact, made a mistake. And you guys really, in your discussion, really, really recognize that. And I'm speaking from a little bit of authority here. I study language and I study meaning in particular. I'm a member of the Department of Linguistics, University of Chicago. My own addition to the group of songs, great songs that you guys all recommended, would be to throw in Wait Until Tomorrow from Axis Bold as Love, which is not, strictly speaking, a song about a mistake or an apology, but 
the great thing about this song is it, it's about uh, someone who is afraid to make a mistake or afraid to regret something. Finally, her lover says, well, I can't wait anymore. And then he moves on. Oh, golly, man, how can you hang me up this way? On the phone you said you want to run up with me today. Now I'm standing here like some turned down serenading fool. Hearing strange words scattered from the mixed up mind of you. So thanks for a great episode. Glad to be a Chicagoan supporting your show. In 1965, I was a freshman in college. We ended up in the middle of a snowstorm in the local town's record shop. Browsing the albums, I found one that just grabbed me. A plain blue cover with the title Collection. It was cheap. 75 cents, I think, and I bought it, and it changed my life. It was a bunch of blues. I had been a radio listener, but had not ever heard Delta Blues, Lightning Hopkins. Long gone, like a turkey through the cone. Bobby Blue Bland, James Cotton. So that was my... Baptism into the blues. It's never left me, and I love you guys, so keep it up. No more messages. Greg, it is always great to hear from our listeners. Thank you for giving us your feedback. Thank you, Andrew Gill, for putting that together. Mr. Cott, what do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we're going to talk about the independent label Fortune Records, which was a goldmine of great, if underappreciated, music in the Detroit scene for decades. And even better stories. For more sound opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to sound opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions is produced by Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne and our intern, Sol Delgadillo. Yes, I'm going.